From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. Hello, I'm Josh Howell, on the job at the Lean Enterprise Institute. You're listening to WLEI. The food industry is a frontier for lean thinking and practice with many problems to solve. Competition is intensifying with an estimated 10,000 restaurants added each year in the US alone. Customer expectations are elevating and the voice of the customer is amplified with social media. Technology keeps advancing, costs keep rising, and labor is scarce, both skilled and unskilled, while wages remain relatively low. And I've yet to mention all the food waste. Fortunately, pioneering food businesses like Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Legal Seafoods in Boston, Massachusetts, and Ben Hartman's Clay Bottom Farm in Goshen, Indiana, are using lean thinking to address these problems and demonstrating for the industry that there is, in fact, a better way. On a recent visit to Zingerman's mail order, I got to sit down with the managing partner, Tom Root. I was there making preparations for LEI's upcoming Lean Transformation Learning Tour that'll be happening the week of May 11th. We turned on the microphone and had another in a series of ongoing conversations where Tom and I reflect on our experiences with lean thinking in the food industry and think about how to reach and impact the industry, one that still knows very little about it. Anyway, here's the conversation between Tom Root and I. I hope you'll enjoy and also I hope that you'll share this conversation, especially with those who you know that work in the food industry. Here it is. Uh, so Tom, thanks for uh, sitting down, having a chat. Absolutely. Uh, continuing our conversation, I right. guess you could say. Sure. And um, maybe just to get us going, uh, could you introduce yourself, uh, tell us a bit uh, briefly about your story, and then uh, introduce us to the company that you work for, sure. uh, Zingerman's. Great. Uh, my name is Tom Root. Um, I'm one of the managing partners of uh, an organization called Zingerman's Mail Order in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I've been with the Zingerman's community of businesses for about 20 years. I actually came here as the chief information officer and the founder of Zingerman's.com. So uh, back in the late 90s, built an e-commerce website to sell food. Yeah. I'm also the co-founder of a small maker space in town called MakerWorks. Um, and have really become interested in lean and operation stuff in the more recent history over the last 10 or 15 years. Cool. Um, so maybe you could tell us, uh, some folks might be familiar with Zingerman's as, yeah. a, as an overall organization, sure. but uh, maybe you could uh, explain a little bit about that too. Yeah, so we typically refer to it as the Zingerman's community of businesses. There are nine businesses that make up that community. I usually describe it as like a solar system, and each one of the businesses represent a planet. Um, so we have a delicatessen, we have a creamery and a coffee company and a candy company and a training company and a couple of restaurants and that sort of thing. So all food-related businesses, all oriented around a common set of principles and practices and things like that. Okay. So Zingerman's Mail Order is one of those. Is one of those, those plants. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and when you came into the business as the chief information officer, yeah. was that specifically for the mail order or was that in service of the, the larger community of businesses. Yeah, that was so. I was the founder uh, with, with my partner of Zingerman's.com, which was a business unit, one of the planets, but my role as CIO was for all of the, all of the businesses for the entire community. Okay. 
So what um, took you from that position within the organization, serving the entire community, to being focused on, on mail order? Yeah. Well, so we, when we started Zingermans.com, it was to give an e-commerce front end to an existing print catalog and pickpack fulfillment business. Um, and basically, this is, long story short, is we merged the two companies. And so rather than being a specialist of just e-commerce, we got more and more involved with the overall operations of mail order fulfillment. Okay. Um, So this is a, uh, we call this the WLEI podcast, put on by the Lean Enterprise Institute. So presumably, uh, we are here to talk about Lean. Yeah, yeah, why not? (laughs) Uh, Not uh, not only Zingerman's. Uh, And Zingerman's is an organization that uh, has been applying Lean Thinking for quite a while now. Yeah. Um, And so why don't you uh, take us to the beginning of that sort of chapter uh, in in. Zingerman's the community or, or Zingerman's mailer specifically great uh, what was happening at the time that, uh, that that you all got started exploring lean thinking and yeah. applying it to the business sure so we had an existing uh, e-commerce and catalog pick pack fulfillment operation mm-hmm. uh, that had the good fortune of be of growing very quickly uh, we in those days we were growing 25 to 35 percent year over year each year and based on the way we were operating, that was requiring very large amounts of space. But mailer is very seasonal. We do 50% of our business in one month, and that's December. Incredible. So we didn't need all that space 12 months out of the year. The we just needed it yeah. one month out of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kept buying or renting larger and larger fixed spaces. And we had moved the business three times in six years and just couldn't stomach having to do it again. Um, one of my three partners uh, was getting an MBA. He went through an operations engineering class. They were introduced to a book called The Toyota Way. He sent it to us and said there might be something to this for us. Mm. Um, we had had a bunch of experiences with things like open book management and servant leadership and things like that that were already in the organization. And this felt very familiar in that respect, philosophically very familiar, the idea of getting people involved. Um, and so we started looking into the, me- the mechanics of lean. And um, we had the good fortune that the author of the Toyota Way book was a local guy, mm-hmm. Dr. Liker. We asked him if he had any students he would recommend working with. We had a PhD candidate spend three years with us and we started running lean experiments and were able to demonstrate within the first year that this was going to be a significant improvement to our process and was really going to solve our space problem. We had, didn't even have any idea it was going to solve a bunch of other problems too, but it was going to solve that space problem. We weren't going to have to move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, maybe you could describe a little bit, like what what was the the layout, I guess, of the fulfillment center yeah. before yeah. Uh, discovering Lean, and yeah. then you know what were some of the changes on the shop floor that uh, that, that followed? Yeah, that. So uh, being that we were human, and the intuition is humans is to batch. Um, We're a gift business. We make a lot of gift assortments, boxes, gift boxes. Mm -hmm. Um, Our most popular one is called the Weekender. So if we had orders for 150 Weekenders that we had to ship tomorrow, Mm -hmm. we would take the night shift and we would batch produce all 150 Weekenders. And the way we would do that is we would line up a long table with 25 open boxes. And then we would take our rack of bread and we would go down and we'd put a loaf of bread in each of the 25 boxes and then a brownie in each of the 25 boxes and so on. We would, and we'd make 25 of them, close them up, and then store them. And then we'd put out 25 more boxes, we'd fill them all up, and then we'd store them. And what that meant is as the night went on, the amount of completed gift boxes 
begin to grow and grow and grow. And this is really the source of that space problem. Mm. So we have hundreds of boxes, to, the, to a point, thousands of full boxes of various types that, by the way, are all packaged to look identical. <laughs> the only distinguishing you know, mark was a little label on it, right? So here we have these boxes everywhere. Quite literally, one year we had them on top of the bathrooms. We had them in the offices. We had them everywhere. And then the next day, we would pick them. Um, and so the first experiment we ran was, what would it look like if we simply made the box to order? Mm. And so we created a marketplace, a, a, a bunch of pick racks that we could go and get the ingredients. Mm -hmm. And then we, if we had an order that had the weekender on it, we would gather all the items and then build the box and then send it down the line rather than picking it off the shelf. Very counterintuitive because the time it took for me to pick it was you know, only a couple of seconds. Mm -hmm. Now all of a sudden it was the time it took me to make it, right? And it seems like we're going backwards. All of a sudden it's gonna take, but it turned out that it created flow, mm -hmm. right? What we now understand is flow. That things, one, that the quality of the basket went up because the maker was focused on one and only one at a time. And so they were better built. Uh, the accuracy of the contents of the box went up. Uh, it turns out that when you're dealing product into 25 nondescript boxes, it's easy to skip one. When I would turn my attention back to the rack to get the loaf of bread, mm -hmm. I would skip a box and, and so it would get to the customer that didn't have all the stuff in it. Mm -hmm. That problem went away almost immediately. Um, and so it, it was, the good news was we had a very early win. Mm -hmm. It felt like a big jump a big success in terms of quality and, and that sort of thing. <coughs> and it was apparent that it was going to solve that space problem. We didn't have all these boxes lying around that we didn't know what to do with anymore. So this big batching, taking uh, what was uh, something unavoidable in the business, the seasonality, the crazy spikes in demand for that one month, yep. and then just saying, what can we do to make it worse? Uh, well, we can do everything <laughs> in batches. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly uh, right. Sort of amplify yeah. the, the, the effect. Of I that. also like to tell a story that, or add to the story that in our genius, we did not put each of the items in the same place day to day. Mm. Right? Where it went on the shelves or the piles was dependent on whoever did that crew that night. Mm. So the weekender, as an example, was not always stored in the same place. So it literally meant that the picking operation was wandering around trying to find where did they put the weekenders last mm. night, mm. right? And that went away as well, right? Well, even beyond that, I mean, to do everything in batches, it's sort of hard to maintain things in, in the same place, yep. right? I mean, yep. uh, as, as they come in and fill up, it takes up a lot of space. Yes. As we consume and consume and yep. consume, yep. it takes up much less space. Now something else gets put into that space yep. that wasn't there before. And, yep. uh, we also, we had a very long lead time. Uh, mm -hmm. We would require that we would, if we took an order today, we wouldn't promise to ship it for two days, right? Because we needed all that time to get the ingredients in-house to make all the gift boxes at once before we could fulfill them. Mm -hmm. And another thing that we realized very quickly was if we're making them to order, we can pull that lead time much, much closer to the time of order. Mm -hmm. To this day, fast forward, right? We take orders to ship the same day until five o'clock at night. Yeah, so that's been, you know, um, we've known each other for a while now yeah. and, and both have uh, backgrounds, time spent in the food business. Yeah. Um, I mean, just such a remarkable sort of characteristic, common characteristic of the food business to have really long lead times. Yes. Uh, to be doing things in batches. Yes. And you'd think uh, of sort of all the industries in the world uh, that would really not, you know, it would be important not to have long lead times, given the perishable nature of the product, yeah. that it would be in the food business. Yeah. But in fact, I think that's just the exact opposite. Yeah. I mean, uh, a bolt through a Toyota plant uh, 
has a much higher velocity, exponentially higher velocity, right. uh, than a muffin flowing through. <laughs> or chopped onions, or right? Yeah, whatever. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess um, as those early lessons were being learned, uh, as lead time, batches, even um, framing problems around those th those ideas yeah. uh, were, were coming into practice. As you mentioned earlier, um, the mail order is one of a number of businesses yeah. uh, within the Zingerins community, businesses that are all, as you said earlier, based on food. Right. Um, so how has uh, some of that kind of learning um, influenced some of the other businesses as well. And I ask that thinking about the industry as a whole. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that, you know, whether it was my experience at Starbucks or uh, other food businesses I've gotten to know over the years, like Legal Seafoods, yeah. um, you know, we're, we, we see consistently within the industry um, opportunity to look at those kinds of problems and improve. Yeah. Uh, so um, maybe uh, here within the Zingerman's community businesses, there's a, a bit of a, a model line experiment happening yeah. uh, that the industry at large could, could benefit from. So yeah. what, what's been that experience? Yeah. So the one that immediately comes to mind is um, I was given the opportunity to go and work with our delicatessen. Hmm. Um, the famous delicatessen. Yeah, Zingerman's Deli. Um, the interesting component of the Zingerman's Delicatessen is, again, they're very seasonal. Um, their season orients around graduation and football Saturdays. Yeah. Here in Ann Arbor, the University of Michigan is kind of a big deal, and so we get a lot of people coming into town during those football Saturdays. Well, also, maybe, un and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. uh, a bit different than the mail order, I guess. Yeah. Um, they've got the seasonality that the mail order has, for sure, yeah. uh, maybe driven by different by different things, a football game versus yeah. uh, a holiday. A holiday yeah. um, but also there's the uh, effect of just sort of the traffic patterns in a given day. So right. um, I was there for lunch today actually at the yeah. deli. Yeah. Uh, and it was quite busy at noon. Yes. I arrived there at 11 o'clock and mm -hmm. not so busy. Yes. So um, anyway. That's so actually what I mean by the seasonality is their seasonality is not calendar or month based, it's hour based. It's hourly based. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Um, and it turns out that lunchtime <laughs> happens about the same time every day, it turns out. Yeah. Um, so, um, but it was a football Saturday that gave rise to this story. Mm -hmm. um, I had been working with the sandwich line manager for a while now, and we'd been looking at things like um, trying to create flow um, so that it got handed off like a nice relay race right down and that there was no waiting on the product in between. Um, we had also been working on doing some work to order rather than batching it. Um, in those days, it was not uncommon for them to pre-cut, pre-slice bread for sandwiches. Mm. Um, we have a bakehouse in our community. Uh, we bake whole loaves of bread. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't come in plastic bags that are already sliced, so the whole loaf would show up at the deli. The morning, would spend the, the morning crew would spend the day slicing up bread, and then the sandwich line would consume that bread throughout the day. We had been working on what if we just cut the bread to order. Mm -hmm. Again, big quality improvement. Totally. So Major quality a lot of a lot of cool things were happening and sort of as a throwaway comment one afternoon it was we were going in I think we were meeting on a Thursday and this weekend was going to be a big football Saturday and so I asked Laura the sandwich line manager so okay um, forget about all this stuff we've been talking about you know what's the one thing that you're dreading about this upcoming That's football better. Saturday. Uh -huh. And she said to me, oh. Besides the inevitable loss of the Michigan Wolverines. <laughs> well, easy. <laughs> <laughs> so she said, oh, that's easy. 
uh, it's the pile of sandwiches. Mm. And I said, the, the, the pile of sandwiches, what, what is the pile of sandwiches? And so it turned out that um, for your listeners, they're going to know something. I presume they're going to know something about lean. So it turns out that the upstream processes were faster than one of the downstream processes, mm. okay? meaning that they were able to push work into the slower process. Um, and there was no regulation on their speed. As a matter of fact, on the sandwich line, the assumption is the faster I can go, the better I am. Regardless of where I am in the process. Exactly. And so what was happening is we were starting sandwiches, we were grilling sandwiches, and they have to come off the grill, right? I leave them on the grill and they're, they're ruined, they're wasted. Mm -hmm. They have to come off the grill. And where do they go after the grill? Well, they go to the station that finishes them, which is the long cycle time station. Mm -hmm. And because there was no regulation upstream, then what would happen is, the as the day went on, a pile of sandwiches would amass between the grill and the finish station, hmm. which actually had the unfortunate impact of doubling the problem. Because whereas before, when everything was flowing, I would reach, if I'm a, f a sandwich finisher, I would reach for a sandwich, I would have one or two or three to choose from. Mm -hmm. My, I didn't have any sorting time associated with that. I would just grab the one obviously I needed and I would finish it. But as the pile of sandwiches got bigger, I spent more and more time at the slowest cycle time looking for the right sandwich in Searching. the pile. Searching, yeah. So it became a compounding problem. And it was a total throwaway comment on her part. Oh, it's the pile of sandwiches. You know, there's nothing we can do about the pile of sandwiches. Mm -hmm. That turned out to be one of the biggest changes we were able to help them with. And all we did was we put little cutting boards between each station. And we said there can be one and only one sandwich on the cutting board. And that means that there's a limit to the number of sandwiches that can be in between each of them. Mm -hmm. And only when there's a cutting board that's open can I start a new sandwich. Mm -hmm. So we sent information upstream that said, don't keep producing, there's no point, works in progress limits. <coughs> they were able to create flow. And that helped in two major ways. One was quality and the second was allergens. Mm -hmm. If your listeners have anybody in their family that has any allergic issues with food, you know That's how critically important thing. this is. Right. And so this idea of having sandwiches commingled and me potentially grabbing the one that I wasn't supposed to grab and giving you something that had something you were allergic to would have been was a real problem. Mm -hmm. This idea of putting these works in progress limits, they just put a different colored uh, cutting board which signifies that this is an allergen sandwich. Mm -hmm. There's visuals in the whole system now. Mm -hmm. There's never a big pile, and it creates flow. Well, it strikes me that that example um, as a really good example of uh, introducing a lean way of doing work yeah. um, in order to address something that, that, in this case, the sandwich manager was yeah. expressing concern about. Right? Absolutely. I mean, an area of struggle. Yeah. And so with kind of it being known what she was dreading mm -hmm. uh, on this football Saturday, uh, the door was open yes. to introduce some things uh, that would that would help her, that yeah. would make her work easier. Yeah. Um, and as you've uh, said a couple of times, end up sort of uh, introducing all of these other benefits too. So the yeah. allergens benefit, uh, the, the ways of just... Um, you know, making things more organized in the kitchen. And, and far less frustrating things. for the people doing it. 
Yeah, right. Like knowing that they weren't going to have to be, because they they would feel bad about themselves. The people in this final position would begin to feel bad because they would look at this pile, and as the pile got bigger, it was an indictment, mm-hmm. right? It was a, it was a, it was standing there looming over them in judgment. Mm-hmm. You're not yeah, fast enough. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that that's not good. I mean, who wants to work in a situation like that? Well, it's a part of why I guess I even focus on uh, that aspect of the story that you tell yeah. is is that this is an industry that that is unfamiliar with or maybe even uh, going so far as to sort of reject um, lean thinking applied to that business for a lot of the things that you've called attention to. uh, Seasonality, um, day part traffic. Lots of variability. uh, All that variation. And so, you know, how can you take something this volatile uh, and put a system built upon stability uh, into it, right? How how can that possibly work? One of the things one of the things I like to talk about um, with respect to specifically the food industry is mm-hmm. the, the 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 blueprint for the modern kitchen was developed by Escoffier in the 1800s. That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. And it, it, the 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 deal with dinner service at that time in history was that there were going to be a Thursday night, a Friday night, and a Saturday night seating, one seating a night, mm. right? And that meant that Escoffier had the benefit of mise en place, which in his world meant the acquisition and the preparation of those items before dinner service. He might spend three days developing a sauce for Thursday night seating, but there was no variability in demand. They knew exactly how many chairs they were, and they were always going to be full, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And he had the benefit of, of knowing exactly what was going to happen. To me, the, the sad part is, is that we're still trying to apply a blueprint that was designed for three totally one seating a price. night to an entirely different dynamic. We have three meals a day. Restaurants are open 24 hours now. How, how do we imagine we're going to shoehorn a process that was developed for one scenario into adopting and adapting for an entirely different scenario? Yeah, well, that's really interesting because you know a lot of times when you have a conversation around something like 5S uh, in, in a restaurant context yes. like I've had, the immediate sort of response that, that you can you can just you know, Count guarantee on. is gonna is gonna be expressed as oh, so it's mise en place. Right. But it's always struck me that mise en place is episodic. Mm. It's not like ongoing. Right. I mean, the system wasn't built for like you're saying multiple turns. Exactly. Um, so yep. it was a build up. Yep. A single pass of consumption. And then a clean, a teardown. Correct. Right? Yes. Um, but that's not how, yeah. that's certainly not how the, the Zingerman's Delicatessen works. No. Uh, it's not how really almost any restaurant works. Right, any uh, modern restaurant tend, tends not uh, to Where there's multiple turns. And yeah. so the, the notion of, you know, replenishing a station as the station's being used. Exactly. Uh, through a, a technique like Kanban or whatever. Um isn't there, yeah. uh, which would actually be sort of a per- perpetual mise en place. Right, exactly, exactly. Advancement yeah. there to make that. I think the thing that I've, I've experienced, I think you have too, is that when you talk to restaurant people, they think of prep as something that happens before service. Totally. Prep happens before service. They're two different activities. But in Lean, we might talk about on-cycle and off-cycle work. And when you look at it that that way, prep is an on-cycle activity. It is necessary to do the the dinner service, and therefore needs to be happening at the same time the dinner service is. It's totally counterintuitive. Yeah, to and it's industry. that's it. Yeah. And my point about bringing up Escoffier too is you have people who are trained as culinary professionals, and they're still drawing from the playbook of Escoffier, and that's why I think you mentioned that they almost seem to be re- actively resistant. I would say because it is running counter to what they were taught. Mm. It's not just accidental, right? 
what, what, what a lean practitioner is asking them to do is, is the exact opposite of what their culinary instructors taught them to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Well, and so the, you know, the, the, I even think about a, a, a day in the life of a kitchen, right? Yeah. So it's six in the morning. Uh, it's usually really early. Mm -hmm. And the, the kitchen, at least, not the dining room, because it, the business isn't even going to open until 11, right. something five hours from now. But the kitchen's filling up with cooks. Yep. And what are they there to do? Well, they're there to make all kinds of predictions, forecasts, <laughs> yes, about uh, yes, yes. what's going to be sold through lunch service, sold through dinner service. And they're going to batch all of it. They're going to yep. prepare all of it. Exactly. And they're not doing it. Um, partially, they're doing it for the benefit of like marination, right? Yes. You, you prepare some ingredients, Absolutely. and you want those things to sit with to have with, time, sit with with each other for an, an amount of time. Yep. Um, but more real, I mean, more to the point, what they're doing is yep. is building up this inventory, yep. uh, which maybe it'll be the perfect amount, likely not, uh, probably too much, too yep. little, um, and but that's sort of the the mise en place uh, mindset. Mindset. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I think, you know, I think a fair amount about, too, is just the, the disconnect, disconnection, then, that those who are preparing that food have with the folks that are going to consume that food. Absolutely. I mean, they may literally not be in the restaurant at Correct. the same time. Many of those prep cooks will go Very home likely. Uh, before the service. Very likely. And so, you know, just the the, the care that, that you would put into a meal you're preparing for your family uh, whom you know and are making eye contact with and <laughs> right. are, are conversating with uh, is going to be hard to maintain for that line cook who's completely disconnected yep. uh, from from the customer. Exactly. Whereas uh, through a tool like Kanban or something, uh, there, there's a way to, to make a really direct connection to those things. Right. Um, the consequences to that in terms of quality, in terms of uh, freshness, in terms yep. of just care I mean yep. um, put into that food is is I think really really consequential then there's all kinds of business impacts too I mean yep. you're, you're paying an entire staff uh, to do work that is potentially a complete waste of time absolutely I mean, you've prepared all this food that that won't get consumed that you, you're gonna have to throw you took away a because high cost away. ingredient you added high cost labor and then because you guessed wrong about how much you were gonna need you threw both away that's right and it's, it's crazy that's right, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Or, you know, so the opposite thing happens, which is, uh, you know, we, we all have uh, familiarity with the notion of an 86 board, mm -hmm. uh, where the, these things that we, prep, that we prepped hours ago, uh, we just run out. <laughs> Didn't make enough. Uh, and we, we don't have enough. Um, and because the prep people went home, that's right, they're we don't have any recourse. <laughs> right, yeah, I right. love it, right? Yeah. Uh, so too much, too little. Uh, the the uh, yes. ever present problem in every operation, but uh, certainly one that, that yeah. exists in the restaurant business. Yeah, for sure. So okay, um, so back to mail order. Mm -hmm. Then uh, thanks for that diversion. It's always yeah. fun to uh, to talk about lean thinking applied to an industry that so desperately needs it, mm. uh, the restaurant industry. Um, but back to mail order. Yeah. So. Um, those early days, those, those uh, sort of heady days of reducing lead time, as you said, of really cracking the, uh, the code around this capacity problem. Yeah. Um, so you didn't uh, move into another space Correct. at your two-month uh, cadence or two-year two two year cadence. cadence. That's right. Um, so that was a good, a good result. Yes. Um, and so, I don't know, uh, things have, have just been uh, hunky-dory since then. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Um, so what was what was the next uh, you, you've described to, 
to me before yeah. there being kind of multiple inflection points. Yeah, for sure. Uh, here in the in the mail order story. Yeah. Um, so so what was the inflection point that followed those those yeah. early heady days of lean yeah. implementation? So during those first several years, we had the benefit of an expert to lead us uh, in the in the work of Eduardo Lander. Um, and Eduardo, as you do when you finally finish your dissertation and defend it, you get your, your doctorate, you get a real job. <laughs> and so he did that. And um, we were then left to our own devices, as it were. Mm. And we moved into the phase of sort of lean adoption of management-led. Mm. So you had some people in the organization, uh, myself among them, who were very much committed to continuing the work. But... I would say we're by no means experts in any way. We're committed to it and capable to the extent that you were interacting with Eduardo. And, right, and, uh, and understood what he was trying to show us at that to that level. Mm. But probably, and, and quite obviously, had no experience getting other people to buy in, right? We were, we were the resistance with Eduardo. Mm. All he had to, what he had to focus on was get us over our resistance. <laughs> and all we had was our own internal resistance to deal with. Well, now we were dealing with the resistance of the people we were working with. Well, the thing that he had available to him in those interactions was you had a pressing business need. That's so absolutely right. So as the management team, yeah. what mattered to you, uh, not having to move again, um, yeah. not uh, delivering the, the best quality food that, that you knew was possible yeah. uh, to, your, to your customers. So uh, Eduardo was, was really meeting you uh, where you had a need. Yes. Um, and, yeah. and that was a, a good recipe yeah. uh, at that time. Yeah. Okay. And then there was so, and then when he left, we had we lost the benefit of his sort of, I'll, I'll call it stubbornness, his conviction. Um, we had only ours. Um, we also had um, the fact that there were a number of people who were like, "Well, look, we we did this lean thing. I mean, what, what more do you want from us? Right? Look at how far we've come in the last three years." So we settled into a period of time that we now call the dark ages, <laughs> the, dark, the dark period. Okay. Um, where what we were trying to do was not have management lead all improvement. We wanted it to be a cultural thing. We wanted it to be a, 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 dem a democratic thing. We wanted the people who were responsible for the work to be the ones primarily improving the work. And we tried lots and lots and lots of different ways, financial incentives, um, acknowledgement incentives, all sorts of different ways to get people to run experiments and to try improvement. Um, I taught classes during those days that was like a fourth grade science class. This is what, it, this is what the scientific method is. Uh, I offered, I paid people as consultants to run experiments off the clock, right? So I'm going to pay you this twice your hourly rate to come in and run experiments on the line. And I don't care if the experiment you defined fails. If you have a hypothesis and you find that it's not true, that, that's still an outcome, right, from a scientific standpoint. We tried lots of things. We tried a, um, the, the Boy Scout marriage, merit badge approach to having someone who had successfully completed an experiment to encourage other people to complete experiments and to be their, their reference point to sort of use the social network conce concept to do it. And nothing, nothing was resonating. We weren't finding the right words. We weren't finding the right processes. We didn't have the right people. Who knows? But it was not coalescing in terms of everything was a, we kind of had to kick the ball and then drag everybody and then kick the ball and drag everybody. And it was, it was very uncomfortable for a long time. Mm. Uh, 
I now say, you know, serendipity is is what it is. Sometimes it's just better to be lucky than to be good. Mm -hmm. And I would say that luckily, um, after we had struggled with that for a long period of time, we didn't lose our conviction, but we were demoralized at least. Mm -hmm. Um, We brought in a... The term, the dark ages, in describing this period of time. Yeah. That's a term uh, invented by whom? I think it's the, a term that I've used recently to describe it looking back. Okay, so but but you as, as a member of management, yeah. looking back at a period yeah. where uh, there was a certain objective, yeah. um, kind of set, set by management yeah. to, to yeah. do the right thing, the yeah. thing that, that seemed really obvious to do, which is to get the folks that know the work, that do the work day in and day out, to participate in this, uh, not wanting it just to be reliant on you yeah. uh, and the other managers. Yeah. So, okay. So, I mean, it, it, to me, the Dark Age is fitting in that because it felt like what was most, uh, what was most defined that period of time was a, we stopped learning. Mm-hmm. We stopped desiring to learn. During the first phase, there was this thirst for, it's all brand new, let's figure it out, gosh, this is really exciting, what's going to happen today? Mm-hmm. And then there was a period of time where like, okay, you know, that's because really, it's hard, right? I mean, that's hard. That kind of convulsive change sustained for a period of time, it can be exhausting. And I think that people got tired. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the thirst, the desire, the, it, it sort of quieted. Mm-hmm. Um, then good fortune was we brought in, we're a very seasonal business, as we said. Mm-hmm. We bring in all, at that time, in those days, we'd bring in 700, 800 people to work for the holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, we brought in a rather inquisitive cohort of people. Um, a number of the people who came in kept asking questions not about how to pack the box, but why do we do it this way? You guys are doing this weird stuff. Why do you do it that way? Um, and they stuck around after the holidays. They ended up getting permanent jobs with us. In large part, by the way, due to the fact that they expressed these, these questions. They were inquisitive. They seemed interested in, in it. Um, at the same time, we started doing tours. We started bringing people in to show them at least what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And then the third component was we have an, another Ann Arbor guy named Mike Rother who wrote a book called The Toyota Kata. Mm-hmm. And the, those three things together sort of coalesced around lighting a renaissance mm-hmm. where all of a sudden there was curiosity again. There was an interest in learning. And we finally sort of gave way to a staff-led culture of continuous improvement where it's no longer separate from the work, it's now perceived as being central to our work. So is there anything that you have that you can attribute the curiosity of that cohort to? I mean, was there something unusual happening that year in the business? Were the, were the I don't know, the foundational aspects of this way of working at a different place than they had been in, in years before? Was there more to, like, ask about, for example. I mean, if, if the year before, you know, the, the, the work methods were less defined, um, yeah. then it'd be hard to ask questions about things that aren't so well defined. Um, if there's an actual document or something that describes the way yeah. of working, you can start to now interrogate that. I mean, there's, there's yeah. something tangible. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's a fair question. I, nothing is springing to mind. To be honest with you, the thing that actually came to mind was that that was probably around the time the financial crisis was occurring. Mm. And it's very possible that the people that we had working there that holiday season were not, they were people who under normal economic conditions would have been gamefully employed elsewhere. Mm. So I, I feel like they came with their own sort of 
intrinsic curiosity. I don't feel like it was anything that we did differently that year. Mm. I could be wrong, but I, I didn't feel like it was anything that we were doing intrinsically different that year, but rather they came with that curiosity. And Toyota Kata gave us a language that was instantly relatable. Mm. Um, all the things we had tried before then, the scientific method seemed archaic. Um, when you talk of, but when we talked in terms of the kata, people were like, "Oh, I understand." The kata has pictures, right? There's the there's the future state and my current state, and oh, I get it. And so I, that's why I think it was a it was an amalgamation of a bunch of good things that just happened at around the same time. I don't think it was any one thing. Mm -hmm. I'm sure um, about it. Yeah, I think it was very serendipitous. Yeah, I feel it was very serendipitous. So, so was there something then about the um, about the the kata approach with that group? Um, and the curiosity that they that they embodied. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I think often about uh, like suggestion systems, for example, yeah. uh, idea systems where yeah. um, they get implemented. There's a, a box that you can drop your ideas into, yeah. and then they die out because there's not action taken. There's not a way for those ideas to be brought to life, and so eventually people stop offering ideas. Yeah. Um, so you have to do both things, yep. like solicit the ideas, yep. take action on the yep. ideas. So, you know, here's, whether or not you were soliciting or not, here's questions being asked, why, yep. uh, and I guess kata as a as a way to carry out the, the, the subsequent steps, the, the act of actually answering the question why, um, not simply whatever, because this is how we've always done it here, yeah. because this is what Tom says uh, to do. Yeah. Um, but that's a good question. Let's let's dig into it. Yeah. And does, does that... Well, you, you made a comment earlier that the reason we started the process was we had a very specific business need. And I realize now we started working with Kata for a very practical reason, too. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that we started bringing people in for tours. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that we did that year was we... Um, we took on the responsibility of working with student teams from the University of Michigan. Mm. A part of their practical class was to work with a client and practice kata. And so out of necessity, we had to host four teams of students. We just picked four projects and then our people worked with the students to use kata to work their way through those problems. Mm. I think that that had a twofold impact. One was out of just, we had an obligation, we'd made a commitment, we need to choose something. Mm -hmm. That forced us to choose it. It was no longer a theoretical, should we or shouldn't we do kata? Mm -hmm. We're kind of, okay, we're in. We're signed up, yeah. Now we gotta do something. Let's pick something that we actually care about, mm -hmm. right? If we're gonna do this, we might as well pick something we actually care about. And then the second was- As far as the problems? Yeah, as far as the problems, yeah. exactly right. So, you know, here you have all these staff members. Hey, you're going to be hosting these students. You're going to be spending a lot of time digging into the details of this thing. What thing do you, what thing are you curious about? What thing are you struggling with? What thing is problematic? But the second part of it, and I mentioned giving the tours and having now students in the building, is our staff began to understand that what we were doing was interesting to other people. It wasn't just that we were a mail order company that was picking and fulfilling orders, that we were doing it in a way that was drawing the attention and in our case, you have to remember, we have people who are working hourly jobs who are now working with, you know, management uh, 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 gurus. Well, <laughs> not, not, but, but aspiring gurus, right? Yeah, These are okay. students it's that are graduate students yeah, yeah. who are now coming here and they're dependent upon the hourly staff member at mail order mm -hmm. to get their job done, right? 
And that created a sense of, wait a minute, I, I, maybe I have something of value that they're interested in learning more. And what they realized was in many respects, they knew as much, not only about their work content, but also the study of lean. They knew the vocabulary, they knew the principles, they knew the concepts as the, the graduate student they were working with. And I think that that allowed them to have a, a, a sense of pride and, and a context for their work that was much larger than it just being brownies and bread and bags and boxes. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So, so thinking about, um, I guess I can just think about my own situation yeah. or, or the situation of folks who might listen to this conversation uh, that aren't going to have students coming from the University of Michigan into their operation sure. to provide that motivation sure. uh, to their workforce. Sure. So help me uh, think about what you know, what would be the equivalent hmm. of that kind of an experience that, you know, I could create back at LEI or, or sure. someone listening could create for their team. Yeah. Uh, and you were touching upon a couple of things there, I think. You know, the the uh, expression of interest mm-hmm. in in someone's work. Correct. So uh, in this case, it was the students from University of Michigan, but, right. you know, kind of who cares? That, right. That, that's not available to everybody. So there's someone who who might uh, come from a position that that frontline worker kind of admires, yep. uh, in a sense. Yep. Um, aspiring managers in this case, university students, but I don't know, it could be anybody yes. uh, who's in a position where that frontline worker might might you know uh, admire uh, this individual, expressing an interest in their work. Absolutely. And then um, <clears throat> you added you added some additional. Uh, Ideas like, um, and then that frontline worker could actually really add value yeah. to the improvement activity that was happening. Yep. Uh, add value through their knowledge of the work, yep. which this person whom they admire just couldn't possibly have. Right. Uh, at least not relatively. Um, but then also um, some knowledge of improvement. Yep. Um, so you guys have been at this for a little while, right. and, and maybe it had felt like it was stalling out, if not going so far as to say, like, failing in a certain way. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but now here's a uh, here's a rejuvenation happening, yes. a rekindling of the interest. Yeah. And wow, um, through the combination of my knowledge of the work and this experience I've had before, this exposure that I've had to, to techniques of work improvement and problem solving, I'm better than I thought I was. Yes. Uh, I'm as good as. Yes. Uh, maybe even better than. Yes. Uh, these these folks that I might that, that I might admire. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, uh, I guess I've just offered my kind of take on it. But, yeah. Um, what 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 do you think about that? And and yeah. what would you um, take away from it too? That, that again could be kind of applicable in any situation, not not just one that's down the street from. Yeah. Where Dr. Liker and Mike Roth are right, at right. the University of Michigan. Well, I really wish I could say that. Oh no, this was all by design. Right. <laughs> but it was not. Of course, of course. Uh, and and the, the way we're even talking about it right now is absolutely has the benefit of hindsight. That's right. Right. Um, I, don't, I don't think that in hindsight I can say that it, it, what it was was a great example of the idea that the people who are doing the work are most knowledgeable about the work. It just it became a very practical matter. It was not a theoretical matter anymore. That's right. Um, and so we created maybe the, so the way, how do you do this? Well, you create a, pla- a practical circumstance where that individual who is doing the work is the expert. You create a situation where they are acknowledged as the expert. Totally. Because then that, 
that does a lot of things. A, for the individual, it allows them to say, wow, all right, I, I, I know something. Mm-hmm. I know something better than someone else does. That, mm-hmm. that gives them value. That gives them purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, by acknowledging that, you're honoring that, mm-hmm. right? So, um, yeah, I think that it, it was not by design, but in practical terms, what it did is it, it allowed them, it was a great example of the person doing the work is the expert. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to honor that expertise and we're going to place a value on that expertise and that the real solution to their problem is in their hands, mm-hmm. right? And that if we give space for that, in this case, we did because we thought we were doing something for the university students, but we gave space for them to make improvements. I don't know. Try it out. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, we got all these secondary benefits. And, and, and did the business benefit? Of course. But I would still argue that the business benefited much more because we had people who, were, who got engaged and were excited and interested and felt of value. So, all right, so you've got this uh, instigating force coming in. Yeah. You've got the, the students coming in, they're signed up, you're signed up, yep. we're going to make this happen. Yep. And some good things uh, started to emerge from that. Yep. And then the students finish their class. Yep. <laughs> uh, they might even go so far as to graduate, and now they're gone. Yep. Uh, and let's place ourselves in a summer month. Yep. Uh, so they're not replaced yet by the next right. group of students. Right. Um, so what's been, what was, or what currently, what still is, the experience of um, the loss then, the, the subsequent loss of that, that instigating yep. factor uh, with, the, with the culture that, that you're trying to create here, yep. one that is continuous, not, uh, right. not, not just based on the, the school term. Right, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, you know, how, how's, how's been that experience? Is yeah. it, did it naturally just continue? Uh, or has it uh, challenged you in, in additional ways? Well, the, the good news is, is that the practice of practicing, intentional practice, is that you develop a skill set. You, you recognize the behavioral patterns, you recognize the rigor, um, and you, you understand that they, I would say that they learned that this, they didn't think about it as an abstraction when they, when they started. They looked at it as an SOP. I'm going to follow these steps and do these things. But by doing it over and over again, by with the intentional practice of doing it, they learned that, wait a minute, this is a tool that can be applied to this other circumstance. And that's what happened. So we had the four teams that started, and we had people in each of those teams on our staff that populated those teams, and they learned the practice. And then someone else came along and said, you know, I got a problem. And one of them would say, well, what if we tried to approach that from Kata, with Kata? Right. What if we try to approach that problem with this, this tool that we just learned? And then they tried it in a different context. And lo and behold, oh, it, it, it holds up. It, it ends up working. And so then there was like, oh, it, it, then you, you know, it's like a, it happens where you, you hear a word for the first time and then you hear the word all the time. You see the, that car on the road you haven't seen and then you see the car all the time. Well, all of a sudden they learned a tool and they learned, you know, this is a hammer. And then everything started to look like a nail. Now, in some cases, that's a really bad thing. But in this case, it was a really good thing. I was going to say, where where, where are we going with this analogy? Yeah, no, in this case, it was a really good thing. I learned that kata is a way to sort of learn about my problems. It doesn't even guarantee we're going to solve them, but it allows me to learn about them more. And now I see problems as opportunities to learn. And they're not problems anymore. They're not overwhelming anymore. They're opportunities to stretch my muscles. They're opportunities to practice the skill I've learned. So if you uh, recall back to maybe that that first round, those yeah. first four problems and that first, those first four yes. uh, instances of 
solving them, tackling them with kata. Uh, and I don't know, thinking of a more recent example, uh, is there anything different, I guess, about the problems that were being tackled then relative to the problems that are being tackled now? Sure. Um, and I don't know, anything else different about the, the approach taken? Is there, I don't know, different uh, ways that management is engaging and supporting that activity? Is there, you know, I mean, so you've had you, cycles now. Yeah. Um, so thinking, I guess the question is sort of getting at the PDCA on yep. the, the kata itself, the PDCA itself. Right. Um, anyway, interested in that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the trick is um, familiarity can breed contempt, mm. right? So anything that we've done long enough um, begins to feel tired. And so I think the challenge that we're faced with now is it feels familiar. It feels tempting to begin to cut corners. It feels tempting to the not... practice of kata. Itself, exactly. Saying. Yeah, it feels tempting to... Oh, I don't have to... I make this, this reference all the time back to food service. You know, what's the difference between cooking and baking? You know, cooking, it's not uncommon to see something like seasoned to taste. One does not add baking soda to taste, mm. right? Mm. Baking is a very precise exercise. And I, I try to teach, when we talk about <coughs> it here, that kata is like baking. This is not a metaphorical, you might go through processes that look something like this. It's meant to be interpreted as very deliberate. Mm. Um, the scientific method isn't, well, sometimes I start with a hypothesis and sometimes I, no, it's, that's not the way it works, right? So I think that's the part where we're, we're dealing with now is, but I still would argue that the, re, the way we keep that fresh is by we continue that engagement with students because we feel the obligation, even if we feel like it's okay to cut corners, we know that that would be a disservice to them. So having some type, that would be the other part of it, is having an external accountability component. Like if you're going to the gym and you hire a personal trainer, um, you wake up in the morning, you still don't want to go to the gym, but the idea of being embarrassed with that personal trainer is much more, much more difficult to get over than the fact that you know I paid the membership and I'm not gonna get my money's worth, right? Mm. So I think the, the students have, have created that kind of thing. It was a, an accountability person that they didn't feel beholden to like a manager. Mm. They felt an obligation to mm. like a teacher, right? And that, that seemed like an important component of it too. So whether or not this is uh, in practice here now or not, um, you know, can you imagine that accountability um, coming from some internal means to? I mean, so the characteristic that you just pinpointed yep. was as a teacher. Yeah. So, you know, you could have peers of yours as a frontline worker or a supervisor yes. that, that you could be teaching. Yes. And so the mechanism of having those folks come around regularly yep. um, to, to be taught, yep. to, to learn. Yep. Uh, and, and the recognition that we want to teach well. Yep. You know, we don't want to teach the, the corner-cutted version of right. this, uh, but the sort of the complete version of this. Yeah. Um, we have, remember back at the beginning, we talked about being the good fortune of being a part of a solar system of businesses. Yeah, yeah. That external accountability is there's now enough interest in what's going on in mail order that people from our own business community mm-hmm. are coming here. And there's that external accountability where we feel an obligation to teach them well. Mm-hmm. So we have the good fortune of having a built-in 
group of people who are periodically calling us up and saying, hey, I'd like to come and take a tour. I hear you're doing interesting things. I want to see about it. Mm-hmm. We have that twofold effect. One, I feel better about what I'm doing because other people are interested. And two, I have this person I feel accountable to, not out of obligation, mm-hmm. not because it's my job, mm-hmm. but because I, wa- I, I want the best for them. I want it, this relationship can be a mutual benefit. I want them to do well. And that means in order for them to do well, I need to teach well. Well, I think about, you know, that we, we have this, um, these LPPD, Lean Product and Process Development yeah. Principles and Practices. And one that the team often talks about are cadenced meetings. Hmm. Um, but even stripping away meetings from that, just the notion of like cadenced activity. Absolutely. So a lot of my work for LEI has been serving as a senior coach, working with organizations. There's no doubt in my mind that the fact that I keep showing up Hmm. drives certain behavior, right? But if we strip away the specifics of any situation, you know, Josh Howell as senior coach working with an organization like Legal Seafoods or, you know, the university students uh, from Michigan coming to work in an organization like CADA Mm -hmm. or, you know, I have, I I can think of another experience. I had one of the organizations that I worked with who set a monthly cadence for the top executives, this is a large company, for the top executives to visit um, a, a site where there was some lean experimentation happening. Sure. And every time that sort of cadence uh, gets set in place, um, good things come. I mean, the, it builds patterns, it builds mm-hmm. habits, it mm-hmm. builds rituals. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If those things are being put around... The desire, the desirable activity. Correct. So problem solving. Yep. You know, uh, not yelling at each other and blaming and. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. That's right. But but it's it's the that the mechanism of the cadence. Yep. Um, and you know if that if what happens within that cadence can be can have some of the characteristics like you just described a characteristic of these people who are, these people are coming whomever they are uh, to learn from you. Yep to demonstrate their appreciation for what you're doing. Yep. Not just what you're doing that's like, you know, extra, that's improving things, yep. that's great, but yep. appreciation for your work too. I mean, just the thing that you're here to do, the right. value that you create. Um, anyway, you know, th- just a- as we reflect on, so this is the Zingerman's mail order story. Right. Um, no one is listening, or very few people who are listening uh, will that will matter to them. <laughs> they right. don't work here. Um, but they do have situations where they're probably struggling with the same thing. Sure. They're struggling with buy-in, with getting that culture to, to take root deeply. They're struggling to yes. get these practices happening consistently. They're struggling They're struggling. You know, yes. with, with any, any manner of yes. things. And so, um, although maybe in the story that we're reflecting on with you, much of it uh, wasn't done on purpose, um, there was serendipity involved, of course. Serendipity. Yeah. There yeah. were just things that happened that, in, in, in retrospect, we yeah. can say, "Oh, wow, that was really fortuitous that it worked out in that way." Yeah. And of course, everyone listening is going to have their own stories that yeah. that are filled with serendipity and filled with yep. random choices. Yep. Um, but okay, but tomorrow uh, is something that we can actually be more proactive yes. with. And so, what are the things that we can? Put in place tomorrow. What, what's the next? What's the cadenced activity that we can instill yes. into our operation yep. uh, that that might derive all these all these benefits? I'll even offer. Prior to Lean, we became practitioners of open book management. Mm-hmm. 
And open book management, one of the parts of the re that recipe is a weekly huddle where we review the financial health and well-being of the organization. So to your point about having some type of a cadenced activity mm -hmm. that had a, a rhythm and a rigor and a pattern that could be followed yeah. was very transformative, totally. having nothing to do with lean. Totally. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we come back to the, to the unique challenge of this business, but a challenge that many businesses can relate to, mm -hmm. which is the challenge of volatility, fluctuation, mm -hmm. unpredictability, variation. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the, the most driving force into our business, which is that of, you know, for, for coming from customers, yep. uh, the demand that they, that they express. Yep. And so here, uh, that comes in the form of uh, very busy Novembers and Decembers. Yep. Uh, at the Delicatessen, it comes in the form of extremely busy uh, lunches on football Saturdays. Correct. Um, but every business, you know, that, that is out there has some version of that. And Absolutely. so, okay, so that's, Crazy, volatile, to some degree, kind of unpredictable. Yep. Uh, although I don't know, often more predictable than, than maybe we. we I would say unmanageable. There's not unmanageable. a lot you can do about it. But the things we can control. Yes. Uh, putting a cadenced huddle around an open book uh, management system. Yep. Uh, or uh, regularly scheduled visits from the local university students. Yep. Uh, or you know, God forbid. Uh, regular visits from the senior coach uh, <laughs> uh, from Boston showing up at your business. But anyway, I mean, you know, that, that's a pretty practical mechanism yeah. that we can recognize is either in place or not and recognize that that is a PDCA opportunity yeah. screaming to be leveraged, yep. right? Yep. I mean, yep. for every time that that cadence occurs, you know, there is a chance to plan it for the next time. Totally. <laughs> we are going to do it as frequently as possible. There's the opportunity to check yep. and make the adjustments that, yep. that come out of that. So the PDCA on the PDCA, the, the, the kata on the kata. Totally. Uh, we're going to get uh, super meta. Super here. meta, right. Yeah. Anything <laughs> you can do, I can do I meta. Think, I think, I think Roth, Rothery would be proud of yes. our, yeah. our, our attempts to, to, to wade into the meta, meta territory. Yes. Um, cool. Okay. The one thing I would, I would like to add to that is... Uh, because I'm, I'm sure that people are, are out there and they're thinking about this. I don't ever want to suggest that a certain amount of patience. We, we, we have a phrase in Zingerman's we call GNP, gentle, never-ending pressure. In order to keep the wheel moving, right, in order to keep PDCA functioning, one has to exert pressure to keep it functioning. If we agree that there's value in this cadence pattern, then the worst thing we can do is allow that pattern not to occur. Totally. So a certain <coughs> amount of gender neverly pressure, if you want to use the, the kind of, or just raw stubbornness, mm -hmm. if you want to be a little more aggressive about it, is going to be necessary, was necessary in our case. Um, it, the easiest thing in the world to do for any of the people who were involved in us adopting lean, the easiest thing in the world to do at a thousand moments during the last 15 years would have been to put our hands up and say, you know what, never mind. <laughs> that would have been the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. If there's somebody right now that's sitting there thinking, I don't know, try it again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Right? Just try it again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Just, and then the day after that, try it that yeah. day too. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's uh, a number of things that I, I've come across just in my own need to hear about others' experience with that 
kind of approach, yeah. that like cadenced approach. Yeah. Uh, John Dragos, one of the LPPD coaches, has a wonderful article uh, where he sort of describes the the predictable pattern of um, of the implementation of like Obeya, a mm-hmm. visual yeah. management place, and um, and a, and cadenced meetings. And you know he he warns you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, when you get started with this, it will quickly feel bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it will be hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, forewarning uh, before you get into it, don't, yeah. don't, con- don't, you know, when you get to that point, don't think that uh, that you're failing or doing right. it wrong. Do anything wrong. Just, just know that that's that that's exactly what's going to happen. Exactly. I've had other folks, you know, you're one who's uh, who's been at this for longer than, let's say, you know, my own individual practice with it. Uh, and that, that's just a consistent part yeah. of the story. So the benefits seem, you know, academically kind of theoretically clear. Um, we can espouse them here and, and encourage people to, to tap into it. Um, at the same time, we can sort of, you know, provide that forewarning to say this is going to be hard. Right. But then to say the right. benefits are legit. Yes. So expect it to happen. Yes. And uh, look forward to the time that, that you emerge from it. Right, right. <laughs> uh, where where routine actually becomes routine. Yep. Uh, and the benefits of, of routine uh, start to start to manifest uh, yep. more clearly. And that's a wrap. I'd like to thank Tom Root for the conversation. I'd also like to thank Zingerman's, a company who's discovering and showing the way forward for an industry with lots and lots of problems to solve. I only hope more food businesses will follow their lead. I'd also like to thank Emma Rip, who produced this podcast, and the team at LEI, who are putting in a tremendous amount of effort, preparing for the upcoming Lean Summit 2020 that will be happening in Carlsbad, California, on April 6th and 7th. We look forward to seeing many of you there. And as always, I invite you to be in touch, sharing feedback and or ideas for future episodes. You can email us at pod at lean.org. In the meantime, like you, I'll be working and learning on the job. Bye-bye for now.